Hey guys, welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, we have something a little bit different. We have a special guest on today, Graham Payne, who maybe you don't know by name, but you'll certainly know one of the significant events of his life. He was the CIO of Equifax during their major breach of 2017. In this episode, we're going to talk to him a little bit about the lessons learned that he went through that breach, both from a business side of things, but also in a personal individual side of things. And I think it's going to be super awesome. So, Graham, let's start with who are you and what are you up to at the moment? Well, I've uh, I've spent most of my career in consulting. I was uh, at EY for um, Instant Young for about 20 years. Um I started my career as an accountant, actually, and uh, got into technology um, in, early in my career. Um, so I spent the majority of my career in, in and around sort of IT risk. Um, I spent a couple of years working with uh, Wipro and their governance risk and compliance practice. And then um, the last, uh, well, for, from 2011 to 2017, I was uh, first the VP of IT risk and compliance at Equifax and then the senior vice president CIO of corporate systems. Um, and now I'm, uh, I have my own consulting company called Cybersecurity for Executives, and I'm mm-hmm. helping boards and uh, senior management teams uh, managing their cybersecurity challenges. So one of the things we'll talk about today, obviously, is going to be the breach that hit Equifax in, in 2017. But before we get into that, um, you talk a lot about you know, informing the board about cybersecurity risks and uh, cybersecurity simulations for breaches and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I think one of the lessons learned from the Equifax breach was um, the importance of having the board involved in these simulations. So just to step back a little bit, um, every organization should have some sort of crisis management plan and should uh, practice that because, you know, just like any plan is only as good as when you actually put it into practice, right? So um, so every, every organization should have a crisis, some sort of crisis management plan. And, and certainly today, those crisis management plans should contemplate a cybersecurity breach as, as, a, as one of the crises. I mean, it may be other, it, depending on your industry, there may be other crises as well that you need to account for, but certainly cybersecurity breach should be one of them. And and when you uh, when you exercise that plan, um, and if it's a significant breach, a significant crisis, the board is going to be involved one way or another. And so I really, I'm a very strong believer that the board needs to be engaged when you rehearse that plan, because that's the test, that's the way that you test and validate the plan is actually effective. And until you actually engage the board in that process, you're really not going to know what role they'll want to play um, so I, I do think it's really important to have the board at least on at least on an annual basis involved in a simulation of um, of a crisis and particularly a cybersecurity crisis, so that they can understand you know what role they do, how do they interact with management, um, what how involved they want to be um, in in the event that uh, a breach occurs. So yeah, so the answer to the question then, how do you get the board more interested in security? I think one of the parts there is, well, they're going to be involved when things go wrong, aren't they? So they they need to be interested just because if things go wrong, they they want to be prepared. So they do. 
So, so in your past, things went wrong. Equifax had a problem in 2017, didn't it? Do you want to give us a quick introduction as to, to what happened for those who maybe aren't familiar with the, the broad uh, strokes of what happened to Equifax? Sure. Yep. Um, so, uh, is it, so just a, a brief sort of run through on the timeline. Mm-hmm. So um, July the 29th, 2017, uh, which was actually my birthday. Where's my birthday? Wow. <laughs> it's a great birthday present. Uh, <laughs> so July the 29th, um, the, uh, the security team was, uh, had updated a, um, a certificate, a digital certificate on a decryptor, and found uh, when they did that that they saw some suspicious activity. Um, so uh, they started to look at that, and they recognised that, um, uh, that there had been. It looked as if there'd been some exfiltration of data. So that sort of was the. Um, so then we kicked off our uh, our normal process and and went through the the forensics investigation. So what? Well, through that process, we discovered that in fact. Um, the the issue was a unpatched uh, system uh, that was using Apache struts, and that that Apache struts um, patch had been released in March, March the seventeenth of two thousand and seventeen. Uh, the system had not been patched, and therefore uh, um, hackers had gained access using that um, vulnerability in um, around mid May, and through May from May to July the 29th um, had um, exfiltrated the data of approximately well what later turned out to be about 148 million consumers uh, data. Wow so it starts with something quite simple doesn't it it's a it's a missing patch but I think the the deeper lesson there as you as you said was it's the visibility isn't it it's the okay so something was missed but you maybe you weren't aware of that because you didn't have the visibility at the time. That's right it's it comes down to you know, it's often you know we hear, we talk a lot about you know we hear a lot in the in the press and everything about you know zero day vulnerabilities and all these new technologies and so on, but at the heart of a lot of these security uh, incidents we have, it's just basic hygiene. It's basic. Uh, it's doing the basics right, right? Making sure that your systems are patched, making sure that you've got you know a valid digital certificate sitting on a on an SSL decryptor so that you can actually see the traffic on your network. Um, these are pretty basic sort of what I call you know, cybersecurity hygiene um, mm-hmm. things that we just need to take care of. And unfortunately, a lot of those things, are, it's not the sexy part of security, right? It's not the, <laughs> it's not machine learning and AI and, and, and all these, these things that, you know, um, that people get really enamored around and excited about. It's the basics often that let us down. Yeah, absolutely. So we we talked a second ago about um, performing simulations of cybersecurity breaches so that the board can be better prepared with the overall steps. But taking that into what happened with Equifax, how can these simulations help organizations be better prepared for the specifics of running through a breach? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. So, um, you know, one of the uh, so so in, in generally, I think what it does is it, it exercises the processes that you have to undertake when when a breach happens. So, just give you give you an example here. So, um, you know, the, the, so July the 29th, you know, we detect the suspicious activity. Within a few days, we recognise that when um, we after we'd done some initial triage and investigation on our own, we need we needed some external help. So we actually hired a um, an external um, security firm that we'd worked with before um, to come in and do a whole forensic analysis. Um, but 
getting the forensics team actually onboarded uh, quickly because we needed them quickly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that we had we had our established processes right about how people got access to our systems, our own security protocols. Mm-hmm. So it's not we didn't you know those protocols don't um, weren't designed to sort of get people access you know within 24 hours or even quicker. Um, so you know that sort of thing would have come out if we properly simulated um, uh, the, the, and exercised the plan. Um, another example was call centres. So um, you know we had uh, we had to ramp up about 1,500 call centre agents in a very quick um, you know in a few days. Um, our identity and access management processes were used to onboarding uh, new employees and contractors, but we never onboard 15. Hundred people in you know in a few days, and so you know those things sort of uh, fell apart a little bit under the pressure of trying to get all that done in a in a crisis mode. We were working towards a, um, a an announcement deadline. So some of those things, um, you know, uh, there's just two two simple examples of of what if we'd exercised the program all the way through to actually doing those things, we might have um, been better prepared and had better protocols to deal with those. Oh wow! So that's that's your own processes playing against you there, isn't it? With your the that's the day to day not working in the way that it does in a time of crisis. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenging. You know, it's really mm-hmm. challenging because you know we we had our you know we had, we were, it was a, quite a, um, a debate you know internally amongst ourselves about okay well you know we can't break our own you know we can't break our own security protocols we have. <laughs> <laughs> we have protocols about how people get onto our network, and we needed our forensics uh, advisors to get their get access. But um, in the end, what we did is we actually um, we had someone fly uh, laptops uh, can, that we you know uh, um, yeah. configured to um, to to uh, um, out to the different uh, people uh, out to the different locations where the forensics folks were working. So um, <laughs> I guess if we the, went through it, but, but it wasn't yeah. a normal protocol. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you've, if you've just recently suffered a breach, you must be uh, at least somewhat concerned or scared about you know, making it worse. If, you, if you're going to start not following your own processes, maybe there's concerns about, you know, is that the right thing to do if you've never practiced before? Exactly, exactly. And actually that brings up another interesting point about um, you know, just in responding to mm-hmm. a, a breach. You know, <clears throat> I think... Um, yeah, it, Equifax was pretty criti- highly criticised by the media and regulators and politicians and many other people about the delay between when the breach was detected and when we actually announced, which was September the seventh. Mm-hmm. So there was about a six-week period there where we were, um, you know, where we were, were doing all the forensic work. But you know, another part, important thing that happened during that time period was actually hardening the environment because we knew that. Because of the data we had, as soon as we put up our hand and said publicly, you know, we are, um, uh, you know, we've been attacked and we've been compromised, that it's really an advertisement out there to say, you know, we might be a soft target and maybe others can come up, come after us. So we spent a tr- tr- tremendous amount of time in that six week period. As you know, one of the work streams was really looking at everything we were doing and how could we harden um, our environment uh, for for the public announcement. Yeah, gosh, that must uh, really complicate the the announcement as well in terms of that's another way in which you can make it worse, isn't it? If you advertise to people you're vulnerable, then more attackers come. That's a that's a real difficult thing. It is, yeah. So for the announcement, um, Equifax decided to to announce that through through a website, didn't they? The Equifax Security 2017. Um, 
what was the period like between deciding you were going to announce and denouncing? So I guess what I'm asking here is what lessons could be learned that would allow breaches to, you know, companies to, when they're breached, move from detecting to announcing faster? Yeah, well, and, you know, that's, a, um, that's an interesting um, challenge, I think, that, that companies have to, have to work through. And that's, you know, that's where the board should be engaged as well. And that's why it's important to involve the board in these simulations because, um, you know, so the, the, the challenge was, you know, could, I mean, Equifax could have announced on, you know, as soon as we sort of recognised that the PII had been disclosed, which was sort of around the 1st of August, we could have announced then. But what would have we said? We would have gone out and said, you know, Equifax has been hacked. Um, we have, uh, we have, we believe uh, consumer data has been exposed. We don't know how much. We don't know who's impacted, and um, and we're not sure. And, and uh, we're not sure at this stage um, uh, when we will know the answer to that. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's. It, that, I don't think that gives you a lot of confidence, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, and, and a lot of these regulations, you know, GDPR and things are, are pushing towards this more timely notification. And I, I'm all for timely notification. Um, but you've got to recognise, too, that there is a period where a company has to go through and actually understand what happened, right? Understand, do the forensics. And that takes time. Um, you also, in this case, as you mentioned, the website, uh, Equifax wanted to make sure that there were, when they did announce that there was a way for consumers to be able to validate whether they were impacted. And so, in, you know, it was an incredible amount of work that went on and, and you know, kudos to the people that were doing that. But, you know, mm-hmm. there uh, was a whole separate initiative going on in that period to stand up um, a consumer website. Now, recognise that Equifax was not in the business to consume. You know, well, we were in, we did have a business to consumer unit, but we we didn't have we we weren't deal, used to dealing with hundreds of millions of consumers. <laughs> so we had to build a website uh, that you know would be hit by hundreds of millions of consumers within a few hours of the announcement, um, and 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 be able to to provide that capability to allow them to check whether they were impacted and then to enrol for for uh, credit monitoring services. I mean, it was just, and, and all that had to be done within six weeks. I mean, it was a trip. Was, to even pull that off was was pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the, the difficulty as well with, uh, as you kind of alluded to there, with um, announcing without all of the information, you know, maybe um, it doesn't show confidence or if you announce and then have to say, oh, actually, it was more records than we thought or the situation was different to, to how we thought, there's, um, there's a complication there as well. Well, and, and exactly, and even that happened. I mean, we announced. I think um, so. On September the seventh, we said. I think we were very carefully worded statements about, um, <laughs> you know, at the, the forensics analysis is continuing, and you know, at this time we know that you know, 143 million American uh, consumers' information has been. Dis- um, I, but it was even uh, even into late October. I think we were still that analysis was still continuing, and we were still disclosing. Um, you know, additional um, impacted consumers. You know, we eventually found another five million impacted consumers. So that you know, the total was 148. But um, you know, that that even even after six weeks, we were still we were still not complete with the forensics analysis. I guess there's a, a question that consumers have there as well in terms of like, what does it mean? You know, hey, you, you've been breached or you were involved in this breach. It's like, okay, what was stolen? You know, is it social security or driving license numbers? There's a lot of questions that consumers have, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, that was, the, again, the challenge is, you know, you want to be able to have enough precision uh, to be able to answer that question uh, versus, 
being able to say, hey, we were breached and we, well, you know, you may have been impacted, but we don't know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, so that is a, that is a, that is the challenge. But, you know, I think by the by September the 7th, the company had got to a point where they were confident enough to be able to provide a lot of that information. So in terms of, you know, the type of data uh, that was disclosed um, and, and um, that, that was all sort of enumerated around that time. So, you know, and then there was further analysis that established, you know, some more details. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the questions that, that I get personally from a lot of companies I work with is uh, when companies get breached, post-breach, you know, they have the board buy-in, they suddenly have more uh, finance to do things uh, from the security side of things. But presuming an organization hasn't been breached, security is fairly new to them, how do you get the board more interested in security? Well, I mean, it's, um, I think it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, my experience, most boards now are aware that uh, cybersecurity is a, uh, you know, is a risk they need, that they need to be focused on. I mean, you look at, you know, every survey that's out there. I mean, the World Economic Forum uh, Global Risk Report, you know, cybersecurity is the number two risk ranked, right? So but there's, there's certainly awareness out there uh, with senior managers and, and boards, I think, that um, the question is how engaged are they in that dialogue um, and how engaged are they in evaluating the, the, the strategy and understanding the risks? Um, so I... I, I you know, to me, um, uh, there's a couple of techniques that it can be used, I think, to get the board, you know, more interested, as you say. I think one is um, that those that are charged with responsibility for security in the organisation really need to be talking to the board and highlighting risks in business terms. I think, um, you know, it's uh, often um, security people that have come through the sort of security world um, you know, often quite technical, and and, can, and uh, you've got to be careful that you don't sort of explain things in a technical way with with without sort of tying them back to the business. So I think it's real important to to highlight things in business terms and to link link business strategies to your cybersecurity strategy and your plans, so that the board understands how these things link together, how they support what the business is trying to do, how they support the business strategies, goals, objectives, and so on. And then putting together a, a good set of um, metrics to show how, um, I mean, for example, to sh- one of the things that w- we showed um, our board was, you know, how often we were attacked, right? I mean, mm, thousands yeah. of times a week. So it's important. To, so the board has an understanding. Hey, this is not just a, you know, we, we're a target. In, and so um, what it, understand what that means and how your, how your, what your prevention and detection strategies are. Um, and how you're managing those risks. Um, I think another thing that's real valuable is to share what others are doing. So, um, you know, talk about, the, you know, something like Equifax. You know, what did Equifax do? You know, how, how are we like or dislike that? Um, what lessons can we learn from that? I think those are also great uh, ways to, to continue to get the board interested in, uh, in dialoguing around, around cybersecurity. But you mentioned a uh, a difficulty there in terms of explaining to the board things, you know, the the business risk as opposed to the technical risk. Um, is there anything that that boards can do to enable themselves to to better understand those distinctions? So I guess is there a benefit for organisations at board level to have something like a chief information security officer or someone who straddles very closely that specific security role from a technical side? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the interesting thing about the chief uh, information security officer role—it's still in the in the sort of modern corporate, uh, in the modern corporate life uh, lifetime. It's still a relatively new position, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think when I when I you know I've been in the workforce for thirty years, and certainly when I started in my career, you know, we did, there was no such thing as a CISO. In fact, there were very many CIOs. <laughs> so both <laughs> I this that, but those roles are relatively you know new in the in the sort of in the corporate history, if you think about it, and they continue to evolve. I mean, these roles continue to evolve, um, but I do think that um, you know whatever whatever title it. You have there needs to be someone in the organisation that is charged with managing the cybersecurity strategy, plans, execution. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate, and there was certainly you know um, a lot of debate at Equifax and and uh, in the various investigations that have been done about um, where security should report, and you know should it be part of IT or should it not? And um, you know, I I don't. I think a lot of that depends on the culture of the organisation, but it, but what is really important is that the right governance is in place. So the needs, to, whoever's charged with it, with with the responsibility for managing security, they need to have um, access to be able to get to uh, the senior leadership team um, mm-hmm. and the board. And in certain organisations, that person may be a member of the senior leadership team. Um, you know that was not the case at Equifax prior to the breach. It is the case now, right? So. Um, and, and I think, you know, depending on the nature of your business, maybe that's the right model for you. Maybe maybe it's it's, you, it's having this CISO report to someone else. But at the very least, they need to have access and regular access to the board um, to be able to dialogue. And so the board can understand the risks and how the company is, and the management is, is managing those risks. Okay, so there's a, a benefit to expert advice at a board level, even if there isn't a, a person specifically on the board. Is that it? That's right, and, and it's interesting. You know, the um, so the National Association of Corporate Directors in the in the US um, released a, uh, a, a director's handbook on cyber risk oversight in 2017, and they had five principles um, for uh, managing cyber risk. And, um, and just briefly, just mention those because I think they're important. One is one is uh, that cyber security is an enterprise, not an IT risk. Um, second one is that boards need to understand the legal implications. Of managing cybersecurity, so that's sort of the compliance aspect. You know, if you're subject to um, particular regulations and laws, you need to be aware of those. The third one is that you should have adequate access to cybersecurity expertise and regular discussions with management about cybersecurity. Um, the fourth one is that uh, the board should set expectations with management about establishing a cybersecurity framework and adequate staffing to support that framework. And then the fifth one is there should be discussions regarding risks and how those risks are being treated and what plans are being put in place. So I, I think if a board followed those four, five principles, um, then I, I, I think that will go a long way to help improve uh, preparedness and, and ability to respond um, in an organisation. I think the challenge is that how, how do you educate the board and directors about that, and how do you enable? How do you give them the expertise to be able to not only ask the questions, but be able to evaluate the responses they're getting back from the management team? Um, I, I, I do think that I, you know, as, as over time we're going to see more and more cyber security, uh, cyber risk expertise being added to boards. There's been a lot of talk about requir- requiring that, just like we require now require people with financial experience to be able to sit on an audit committee and a board. Um, 
it's I don't so there's a lot of pressure to do that. Um, the question is, where do you get that talent from? Because you know, we already know there's a, a huge talent gap in cybersecurity around the world. So, but I do I do think more and more boards are going to be looking for that type of expertise, um, either either to, to be part of the board or to be able to contract it in and be able to to have some expertise, either they're coaching and mentoring or working with the board. Yeah, so that's always an option for the board, isn't it? If you if you don't have someone specifically who sits between technical and business and can speak both languages, then there's an option to to bring somebody in and say, you know, hey, take us through some simulations or take us through the steps that we should be doing. So that's an alternative option as well. Absolutely, yes. So the board should be more interested in security because at the end of the day, it's, it's their responsibility. One way to get them more interested is to allow them, you know, to show them the, the questions that they should be asking and, and help them to to understand the answers that they're giving. Um, is there any other uh, board level advice that you would give to an organization who's who's maybe worried about other organizations being breached and that kind of thing? So there's two, two things I think are really important. One is that the board, um, the board needs to... Be able. To, it needs to be satisfied that uh, their team, their management team, um, understand has identified and understands the risks, and it ha- has a good plan to pre- prevent and detect when things go wrong. Um, so that's step, that's one. The second thing that's really important is for the board to also understand how is how prepared is the company to respond when, not if something goes wrong, right? Because every you know the, the number of breaches just continue to, to uh, the, the numbers continue to expand. That we come, everyone's vulnerable, um, as was de- demonstrated with Equifax, who spent you know a significant amount of money and effort on security. You know sometimes it's the simple things can fail us. So when when those things when that thing happens, the board should be confident that the management team you know and the board working together have a plan on how to respond to those, to those respond and remediate and sort of re- get back to, to normal business operations when, when something goes wrong. And if they, if they focus around those two issues, I think um, uh, that'll take them, you know, they'll, they'll be, um, uh, they'll make great progress on, on really um, managing their cybersecurity risks. Cool. So you, you we talk about uh, breaches here quite generically, haven't we, so far? Um, if an organization's concerned about making sure that they've they've had a simulation or they've got a plan in place for um, a cybersecurity event, um, what kind of resources can organizations use to make sure that they're covering enough breadth for events? Obviously, there's like a difference between an information breach or a hack or an insider threat. How can organizations make sure that they're covering all bases? Well, uh, that's a great point, and I think um, so. In the um, in their uh, incident response pr- plans and, and strategies, they should identify those mo- those things that are most likely to happen. You know, a hack, ransomware attack, um, uh, you know, disclosure of confidential information, um, uh, those types of things. If they if they identify those scenarios and then build their uh, plans around those, then um, that would be my advice. Cool. So it's almost like going back to statistics there, things that we, we mentioned earlier, you know, looking at the most uh, common risks. It could be a case of looking at, well, what's happening to other organizations and, and how we can take, how can we take that on board, that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of good material out there that can help uh, and, 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 and um, help boards and help, you know, managers um, as they're thinking through those um, through, through those issues, right? 
Well, I think that's that's all of my questions that I that I had for you. Um, is there anything anything that you wanted to add that you don't think uh, we've covered? Um, well, I'd just like to say, so you know, for those that are interested in learning more about the um, uh, you know the Equifax breach, and um, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about was the impact it had on me personally. So. After the breach was announced, uh, obviously, you know, the uh, regulators and the uh, and the politicians got uh, got involved, and mm-hmm. um, there were several um, investigations launched. And one of the and there was also investigations launched by um, the ha- uh, House of Representatives and the, mm-hmm. and the Senate here in the U.S. So um, uh, a day before the uh, CEO or the former CEO uh, testified to Congress about the uh, what the cause of the breach, I was I was terminated. Um, for failing to forward an email, which um, uh, was sort of surprising to me at the time. But I subsequently realised that um, in the next day when I was watching the testimony, that, uh, that, that, I, that uh, the, the company uh, claimed that the, the cause of the breach was that um, the person responsible for forwarding emails on uh, vulnerabilities didn't forward the email, and that um, and we, there was also a, a failure in the, t- in the technology in that the security team who was scanning um, the server that where the Apache Struts vulnerability was didn't identify that the um, scanner, security scanner, didn't identify that uh, the fact that that a vulnerability actually existed. So there was sort of a human and technical error. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that so so that that was the, the impact it had on me. So I've actually um, I've written a book about that, and which will be published very very soon. Um, it's called uh, the Equifax Cybersecurity Breach 2017: The Human Error. And so um, I would encourage the listeners if they're wanting to learn more about uh, about what happened and some of the lessons learned um, to uh, to get a copy of that book and and uh, um, always happy to talk to others about that as well. I think that's an awesome point there, actually, in terms of where we you know where where we fall back to say oh this person's at fault or that person's at fault. We should have fail safe systems in place, shouldn't we? We should have um, some way if. Uh, person isn't available people take days off people are sick you know people are unavailable i think um i guess do you agree that systems should be built with those kinds of fail safes in place so that if one person messes up it's not a crisis event immediately oh absolutely i mean it was it was quite um interesting watching uh, uh senator franklin um in one of the uh one of the hearings with the ceo the former ceo um he his, his point was, why is the, as uh, is a paraphrase of his um, statement, that it was something like, uh, Mr. Smith, why is the uh, personal information of 143 million Americans uh, in the hands of one guy? Why is it in the hands of Gus? Of Gus? Well, I'm Gus. <laughs> but but the reality is, is you know that should that that the the. the the processes for disseminating, uh, you know, I, I do. I think that's a gross oversimplification of what the actual issue was. And you know, this is a pretty standard protocol, though, when a company has a breach. I mean, it, so let, let's let's sort of break that down a little bit. I mean, if you can blame it on an individual or a, or a, or a couple of people, um, then it's not a systemic problem, right? And mm-hmm. so you're not expo- if you if you go up and say, well, yeah, our security was a security process were just bad. Well, now you're exposing your company to a lot of legal um, exposure and so on, right? Because yeah. 
because now you're saying you've got a systemic problem, so it's a management problem, as opposed to well, you know, one individual failed to do something, and that was and there was a break. You know, it, it was the process was wasn't a problem; it was just this individual didn't do their job, and that's really a gross um, oversimplification of, of the whole process that existed. I think most people recognise that, um, and you know, uh, certainly as a CIO who received hundreds of emails a day. You know, I wasn't <laughs> was never instructed or expected to have to forward vulnerability alerts um, to yeah. to my team. Right? They should have that information should have been getting to them in in, in a different fashion. So, but it's um, um, but it's been it's it's been an interesting process having having lived through that and having gone through you know uh, testifying to con- uh, Congress and various investigations uh, in twenty eighteen. So, um, more about that is all described in my book. So. I think um, I think that that ties right back to the beginning of our conversation, though, doesn't it? In terms of if you're running through these simulations of security breaches, you could very easily, as part of one of your simulations, at any point just say, "Okay, that guy's not available anymore. You know, he's ill. He's he's taken a day off. He's not in the office." And I guess you could uh, plan around the unavailability of that that critical person as well. Absolutely, and and you should. I mean, those are the sorts of scenarios um, that you need to, to run through because, um, uh, you know, in in times in times of crisis, things happen, um, and and uh, all those sort of things are unavailability of key personnel. I mean, that's why you have, um, you know, a hierarchy of who who can make decisions and things like that. Because what happens? I know. I remember back to you know the uh, to nine eleven. I mean, some of the companies that. Uh, you know, their whole management team were outside of the country, right? And and so that, you know, how did they make decisions when their management team was was un- couldn't be reached or was out of the country? And um, so those things happen. Well, that's part of normal part of business. So you've got to have your plans have to be flexible enough. And and so you know, to that point, I think um, a lot of plans I I see are very procedural. They're almost like do A then B then you know. Um, there might be a decision point, and then we go to C or D, and you know, so it's very sort of logically laid out, almost like checklists. I think in a big crisis and a big thing like this, often those plans, uh, you, you know, things evolve so quickly that the the news cycle is is pretty quick. The the information flow just happens a lot quicker than we have time to sort of go through logically step by step. So I think um, keeping your plan simple. Um, making sure that you've got a good, uh, you understand who is going to be the person that's going to be making the key decisions or the people, the team, uh, having having clear authority defined, and then being maybe more sort of based around some some broad principles and considerations rather than being very procedural. Um, because I think in reality, when you get a big crisis like this, you have to manage the the plan doesn't quite work out the way that you might have thought it does. It would have in terms of step one through twenty, right? So you mm-hmm. probably need to, to be less procedural and more sort of principle based. Oh yeah, I see. That's that's a really good advice. So planning for the next step is not possible. What do we do instead? Right, right. And if you have a set of principles, uh, well, what are we going to? What's really important? What are things as we consider how we respond to this? Because some of those. Decisions are going to be made in a war room by you know a small number of people in the crisis team uh, with all the best information they have available. So, you know, and often it's a choice, right? There's you know there's maybe two, one or two, or maybe three paths they can take. You know, do we do we go public with this or don't we? Or do we 
um, do we do we um, do we address this this way or the, or the other way? And so, how, how, some principles that help you guide to which option is the best option is probably better than necess- than having um, like a, a checklist of twenty items that you know may or may not apply. Yeah, I see you said there as well. Uh, the, you know, the decision makers in a war room with the information they have available, I guess that's a good point. You're not always operating on a complete picture of everything that's happening or happened. We mentioned that earlier with the forensics, forensics investigation, but I guess just in terms of like every aspect as the board is working through that process, they're not necessarily completely informed. That is so true. And I mean, it, today with the news cycles, it's so quick. I mean, we were getting questions you know, news media coming to to us and saying, you know, we're going to release this story within 30 minutes. What do you have a response? Well, you know, just to fact check it and to get background on it and to you know step get to the right people internally to understand if this is a you know and then and then to write a response and run it through the uh, the various approval levels. I mean, it certainly takes more than 30 minutes. And so, <laughs> you know, and, and if you can't respond, um, then you know that 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 you that uh, article goes to to the press. It gets republished and posted and cross posted, and eventually you get your response out. Um, the the they you know you may be correct some of the facts that they had. Um, they might retract their story or they may just post a correction. But by that stage, you know the headlines are already out. So it's a it's a real challenging living through something like that. It's a, it's really challenging uh, uh, time. And, and, you know, you're, the, as I say, we had the, the war room, we had several war rooms. We, had, we even had a communications war room because, you know, the, the pace of the news cycle these days is just, is just relentless. Wow, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting to hear. I guess um, there's so many lessons learned from, from doing it at this scale that it's so difficult to get, you know, the specific guidance out, isn't it? So you mentioned you have multiple war rooms. I guess that's for the different aspects of handling the breach. So one for communications. What what are this? Right. Well, so we had uh, war rooms. So this, uh, if we're now talking about post, we had a war room sort of pre, pre-announcement, mm-hmm. which was dealing with uh, all the remediation and the hardening and the forensics um, and so on. So, mm-hmm. um, so there was that that piece. Post breach, uh, post announcement, I should say. We had um, we had the communications war room. We also had you know, a war room around uh, the customer response or the consumer response. Right, we were we were having issues with call centers, uh, with the website, and so we had a you know we had a, a war room focused on that, um, and then um, uh, and then the communications, and then we um, we also had. A war room because another activity that happens <coughs> had to happen was preparation for all the various um, lawsuits and investigations. So there's a tremendous amount of um, of data that needs to be uh, captured, right? So we had uh, we had to you know, take images of people's phones and and computers and emails and um, and uh, and servers and so on. And so all of that. Uh, Evidence has to has to be has to be sort of captured and preserved um, so that it can be provided to investigators because they come in and sort of subpoena all that information, mm-hmm. right? So there's another whole set of activities around that that had to happen as well. 
I imagine there must have been a huge amount of data to protect as well if you're, you know, changing your systems, like you say, hardening systems, spinning up new systems for part of the announcement and things like that, but also trying to retain what the state of things were, this evidence effectively. It must have been uh, difficult to balance spinning up new systems as well as just capturing all of that data. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a tremendous amount of disruption to business operations, you know, for for a period of time while that was all occurring because, you know, that was the top, it was pretty clear from the management team that was the top priority was, um, so, you know, if, if you were, um, if you got a call from the security team or the lawyers or whoever was requesting something, you know, that was, you dropped everything and, and uh, responded and, and so, um, but, you know, we're still trying to run a business at the same time, so, um you know, just trying to live, trying to run a business and deal with all that, it's, it's just a huge, it's a huge distraction both in sort of management time and, and just people too. I mean, um, you know, hundreds of projects got spun up in the, um, you know, in the period just after that as um, uh, as we were responding. And, you know, as we were responding, as we were, you know, dealing with evidence collection, as we were doing further investigations, I mean, it was just, a, you know, hundreds of projects across the business. That were um, were linked to the to the incident. Uh, I hope no one else has to go through this because it, it is a very stressful, both you know from a personal perspective, but also just you know it, it really stresses the organisation. I think, and so um, uh, you know it's much better to be prepared uh, and to uh, make sure you're you know you're doing everything you can to protect and and uh, detect um, so that you don't have to respond. Right. Mm-hmm. So that'll be my closing comment. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, I guess personally, though, there must be a nice thing for you as an individual to think, you know what, I've done that now. If anything happens again, you'll at least be somewhat more experienced. <laughs> right, right. And so that, you know, that's where, today, you know, now I'm actually working with companies to help them to, you know, leverage all these lessons that I've learned and gone through one of the biggest data mm-hmm. breaches of our time. Um, to to work with uh, with senior management teams, with boards, and with um, and with you know with CISOs and others that are responsible for managing security to really help improve, um, help educate, help improve their strategies, help improve their response processes, and and then sort of coach and mentor mentor them um, as they discharge the responsibilities and try and improve their programs and address these issues. Well, I just got to say thank you then for uh, for coming on our podcast today and, and sharing at least some of those lessons with us today. It's been it's been really great to have you on, actually. Great. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So one thing that I'd like to hear from you guys listening to that breach, that story of what happened to Equifax, what concerns do you guys have and how are you preparing for that day where the worst thing happens? I'm interested to see how many organizations are doing things like wargaming, these simulations of security breaches. How are you preparing for your response? Let us know over LinkedIn or Twitter. Check out the links in the description of the podcast and get in touch. 